Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of The Ethics of Research. My guest today is a very good colleague of mine who graciously volunteered her time to provide me with my very first interview for this podcast. Her research intersects with the current reckoning within the Canadian Armed Forces on the issue of gender-based harassment and violence. So I thought it was timely that we have this discussion. Charlotte Duval-Lentoin completed her master's degree in military history in 2019. Her research focused on gender integration during the 1990s, which intersected with the decade of darkness for the Canadian Armed Forces. She studied how the dynamics that contributed to that decade of darkness led to the failures of gender integration and what the impact of those dynamics were on service members. She is currently working on a book titled the Ones We Let Down, Toxic Leadership Culture and Gender Integration in the Canadian Forces. It is available for pre-order on Amazon. She is also a regular contributor in the media on the issues of culture change and leadership in the Canadian Armed Forces. Here is our discussion regarding the ethics of researching gender-based issues within the military. We hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, thank you so much, Charlotte, for giving me my very first interview for the podcast. Welcome. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So um, as I mentioned in your introduction, your research is very topical because um, we are seeing news items every day related to um, issues of gender-based discrimination, harassment, violence in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, so before we dive um, deeper into your research, I want to start off by asking you, how did you get interested in this topic specifically, both for your master's and then also afterwards for your book? So that was a loop, actually. I think that a lot of people will relate to that when they get into grad school and they have a specific topic in mind and then circumstances make it that they do something completely different. So I entered my master's degree in military history, wanted to do uh, the memory of Vimy Rich because as a French citizen, I did not understand why people cared so much about it uh, as compared to D-Day or the remembrance of World War II. Um, so I started with that, but then my supervisor was telling me, oh, you're going to do public history, you're going to work at the museum, like think about the War Museum of Canada in Ottawa. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I'm not, I'm really, really not interested in doing public history. So I started digging. And then I came to him and I was like, what's, what's the situation with women in the Canadian Armed Forces? Because it's something that, that we don't really hear. And also when I started my, my degree it was the Me Too movement. Um, and he sent me a bunch of, of documents. Um, and I found that the, the stories of military nurses have been told quite a bit, but we don't know a lot about the history of women in combat. Yeah. in the Canadian Armed Forces, despite okay. it being, you know, like, it's the 1990s. So, like, the, the general officers that, that you see today came in the military around that time. Um, and, and so I started reading a lot of PhDs and MA theses that were written about this. And there is a very interesting piece of history in the Canadian Armed Forces is that the integration of women in combat arms was mandated by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. 
Oh. And I was like, oh, how do those dynamics yeah. work? And also it's a very rich history because the 1990s are also known as the decade of darkness. Yeah. So those history have been quite um, discussed separately. Mm-hmm. And so my question became, how do I include that um, as one piece of history? How the dynamics of the what we call the decade of darkness, where there was a lot of scandals, there was a Somalia affair, there was misconduct in, in Bosnia and stuff like that. Like how those, those histories of scandals like contributed to the failures of, of gender integration in the end. So, so that's yeah. where I came about that. And, and then I had a very supportive supervisor that actually from the day we met, like literally the day we met, I, we didn't know each other before September, 2017, when I started my program, he was like, you want to write something? We're going to make it a book. And so I submitted my manuscript in March of 2020, uh, the, the week, the, the lockdown uh, happened actually. And, uh, and now as of, uh, as of the day of the recording, I received my proofs and my book is going to come out in the spring. That's excellent. It's almost like you had a productive quarantine in a way, you know, it's like when, when people would ask questions later on, what did you do during your quarantine? You can literally say, I wrote a book. <laughs> I well, finished the book. Well, you know, like the book was like literally my thesis. Yeah. And because I actually ended up waiting most of the lockdown yeah. for my peer review to come in. Yeah. It's like, Yes, like technically it's productive, but when you spend 400 days waiting for something, it doesn't sound very productive. So like, I I think that a lot of grad students will relate to that when it's like you transition out of grad school and you're like so used to being a a busy body all the time. Yeah, yeah. It was so anxiety laden for me to, to wait that I started like reading a shit ton of books. Yeah. Just because I was like, oh, maybe if I read and I like do a lot of research, my book's gonna come back faster. faster. That's not how it works. <laughs> That's not how it works at all. But that was my logic, and so I ended up like reading reading a ton of books. And I and a friend found the Somalia documents archive for me, and I was like, best Christmas present ever because it was like like the week of Christmas 2020 yeah. okay. and I started doing that while waiting as well and uh, and and then like I- I'm pretty sure we're gonna delve into that but yeah. then the scandals the yeah. 2021 scandals happened and like this is like two months after it started I get my manuscript back and it's like huh well I knew my book would be interesting but now yeah very <laughs> yeah and yes yeah so before we dive right into the crux of your research I want to ask first about your method so what kind of methods do you use qualitative or quantitative and why so I'm a historian mm-hmm. uh we don't have those kinds of methodology that you do in political science even mm-hmm. though I I did a bachelor's degree in political science so yeah. I have an understanding of how it works um a lot of people in, uh, so I'm, I'm very quant uh, okay, yeah. in an approach, like very quantitative. Sorry, no, I'm quantitative. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm very quantitative. Uh, so 
And, and also, I think that this is some parts of the conversation that we're missing when we're talking about the representation of minorities, especially yeah. in male-dominated environments like the military. We talk a lot about adding like 25% women, you know, like five, like attaining the 5% of Aboriginal in the military. And it's like, yeah, it's great that we want to have those targets to have like a more balanced organization but we have lost so much sight of the qualitative aspects of representation yeah. and inclusion that a yeah, lot of what happens is that like we add women or minorities and we stir so yeah. we don't adapt the institution to the specific needs of of minorities not only cultural and and like linguistic and stuff like that. But for women, it's also very much physiological. Exactly. So a lot of women are still dealing with equipments and physical standards that were meant for men mm -hmm. because there is that idea of um, anything that is adapted to women uh, means lowering the standards. So I'm very qualitative like that because to me, it's like 25% is kind of nice, yeah. but it's going to be difficult to get there because the military has been stagnating at 15, 16% mm -hmm. for the past decade. Yeah. So to me, it's like, what if, what would it mean if we had only 15% women in the military, but yeah. all the conditions were met for them to thrive in the military? And this is what I'm focusing on. It's like those barriers to women's meaningful participation to use the language of the women peace and security agenda mm -hmm. excellent now this ties into my next question right away it's like what were the, the ethical dilemmas that you face right now that you are asking this question and you went about conducting your research what were some of the ethical dilemmas that came during your research journey that maybe you anticipated or even didn't anticipate so i didn't have to do ethics for my research mm -hmm. um, because what i ended up doing is using interviews that were done in the past that okay. were done at the time of the of integration okay because yeah. as a historian what the the problems that you encounter when you ask people something that ha has happened 30 20 years down the road yeah it's the problem of memory exactly uh yeah. it tends it tends to um tends to interfere with all of that so when writing my book or before that my thesis there I didn't have that many ethical dilemmas because mm -hmm. I was talking historically I had the documents to prove it um, and I had those testimonies that were already in front of me for which people had ethical approval and that have had those ethical um, discussions doesn't mean that I was not taking uh, those questions here, like questions of like how to represent effectively what people were saying uh, seriously, but it was the question of harm done to the interviewees were, was a question that was addressed before my time. Yeah, and so yeah, that this then brings me to the point that you just mentioned that you know, so if the interviews were done, you still had to deal with how to represent about it, how to write about it. So what, how did that come about? Even when you, for example, had an interview transcript, what kind of decisions you had to make while you were integrating that data into your own work? So what I did is I really took into consideration the analysis presented by, by the people mm -hmm. uh, that did the interviews, and also 
a lot of cross-referencing. Okay. okay. Uh, because like my advantage by not doing interviews and looking for interviews that were already done, I had a wide availability of interviews that I couldn't have done Mm-hmm. in the two years I did my master's right because like at some point you need to stop you cannot yeah, interview like exactly. you you cannot interview like 35 people in a year for for a master's degree it's insane but I had access to all of that and I had access also to actually quantitative research about uh of surveys and stuff like that so it's and, and, you know, the confidentiality and the anonymity were already taken care of. So everything that I was saying, I actually didn't have the information uh, available to identify those people. I also enjoyed a very informal network. Uh, I actually had the chance to meet some of the people who have written the reports and, some of, and, and one of the PhDs that I've read on the topic. And they talked to me informally about their experience. And because of that, because I had the chance to talk to them and give, like, have their insight, it, it further influenced and gave me a view on how, how to approach this. And, and sometimes the easiest way to do things is let the person tell their story and just quote them directly. Yeah. And, and that, that was the way that I addressed it, uh, even though, you know, it, it was not like I had to go through an ethics approval for that. Yeah. Did you ever have to deal with the issues of, you know, because uh, oftentimes when you're studying, like you mentioned, history, there is the issue of memory and, you know, what is accurate, what might be exaggerated. When you were reading, even if other people's interviews, did you have to struggle that, do I trust this person? How, how trustworthy is this testimony? For example, even if you cross-reference, can you find everything that you wanted to double check? Or, or sometimes you had to make decisions on your own that, you know, okay, I'll include this, but I'll not include this. So my supervisor says there is no bad source. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so what I was looking for was less of personal history, but I was looking for trends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then like, as soon as I identified the trends, I would include personal history to um, to I- illustrate it, right? Mm-hmm. So b- basically I, I came, I come from like the toxic leadership uh, yeah. and organizational behavior literature. And, and I looked at the Canadian forces doctrine and looked at, everything that happened. And a lot of the time I actually relied on Canadian Armed Forces documents, like the documents put out by in yeah. the institution itself. Yeah. So I, I would take stuff with a grain of salt, but it was yeah. easy to find the contradictions. Mm-hmm. And that was the perk because um, I, I, I was able to get access to a lot of media clips Mm-hmm. Um, or like media clippings and newspapers article and stuff like that. And then on the other hand, I had the history of like what was happening behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So I was able to, for example, when you had um, the, the Minister of National Defense saying that they've done everything possible to, to deal with the issue of sexual misconduct because there was a big scandal in 98. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that there was supposed to be a monitoring um, 
committee looking at the issue of sexual misconduct, but nothing can be found about it. Yeah. Nothing in the literature, nothing in, in the news media. You have a couple of mentions because a very high profile former service woman, uh, Sandra Perron, was a member of it. Mm -hmm. Because there was like nothing and not even in the archives, that gives you some ideas yeah. about like, should I take this at face value, mm -hmm. you know? So, so there are those kind of things. And also like looking at when you deal with newspapers, like looking at at different sources. Uh, so for example, David Pugliese was very prominent in the 1990s mm -hmm. uh, as uncovering scandals, but like, what was McLean saying? What was the Globe and Mail saying? What was Toronto Star saying? And like, where are the parallels? Um, but in some instances, what was interesting is that I couldn't find any Canadian sources for some documents. Yeah, yeah. And I would find it in the, in the New York Times. Wow. Um, and that was interesting. I know that there is some limitations with my work because a lot of the sources I have is newspapers, mm -hmm. but I, I try to do my best to like cross-reference like all the analysis that were done before me, mm -hmm. all the internal documents, all the externally contracted documents and, and those newspapers to, to try and like flatten the curve. And, and, you know, when I was, re when I was waiting for the peer review of my work, I started reading more about the 1990s. I started, um, I, as I told you before recording, I looked into the Somalia archives. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had like additional proof. Yeah. Um, and so like, even though I did not include those, some of those new sources to, to my work specifically, like I was able to like really sit down and be like, okay, a lot of people have criticized me for cherry picking. Mm -hmm. Let's look deeper into it. And, and usually when, when you're dealing with issues such as misconduct, in my head, and, and it might be, um, we, we could have a debate about this. And, and I think that this is a problem that a lot of service members are grappling with right now. But to me, one instance of misconduct and of it being poorly handled by by the government or the Canadian Armed Forces mm -hmm. needs to get addressed. Yeah. And then when you find that it's not like, it's not just one story. It's like several stories that are spread out in different aspects of military life. So you have submarines where women were not being integrated. You had uh, the deployment to Somalia uh, where a war crime was committed. You had the deployment in Bosnia where, where it was like completely different people. And then you had like women being assaulted in the army, in the air force, in the navy, in uh, combat roles, in combat support roles, in in clerk position. So when you have like all those little things that are happening at different spaces, when you're looking for patterns, it's not that you cannot trust that source. It's like okay, there's something bigger than just what this person is saying. Mm -hmm. And and to me, also part of ethics is like go with start with taking the person as at face value mm -hmm. then continue digging yeah like start with i am believing this account yeah but i'm gonna do more research about some specific aspects of it yeah and also there were surveys that that also complemented uh what i what i found where you have a survey that in 95 that was saying that over 90% of service members were not trusting of their chain of command. Yeah. You're like, okay, so that is an indicator that 
I'm actually not just cherry picking. It's just that what I have is what has been public publicized by the media. Did you ever so, feel that your you your objectivity as a researcher, but also the idea of you know believing the account because specifically you know you don't want to dis- mistrust the victims either. Did you ever feel? a contradiction between the two or did you think that they are one and the same like you can be objective and at the same time you know uh, be believe, believing the accounts that are you're coming across or did you ever feel uh, you know conflicted in the two like do I need to be more objective do I need to do even more digging things like that so I'm gonna say something extremely unacademic okay <laughs> I don't think that in social sciences or rather in humanities, you can be objective. Yeah, I mean, like there humans, is, yeah. yeah, but like there is like, there is um, a part of me that that was led to this work. Like there is mm-hmm. a reason that was led to this work. Like not only my path as a researcher, as a military historian, like looking at my prospects in the future and like how my thesis could lead me to that. Mm-hmm. But also as someone who has experienced toxicity and, and abuse and, and violence in my own life. So what I, what I usually did was like more so looking not at the content, but how it was said. Uh, for example, I was I, I read that book by by Scott Taylor, who is the editor of uh, Esprit de Corps, and he has that very like punchy um, punchy style of writing. There is a lot of um, him like the way he writes like almost sounds like he assumes um, like maliciousness on the on the end of the government and the Canadian Mm -hmm. forces Mm -hmm. and something that and it's great to like do your first like substantial research and have a supervisor that is supportive because like he always reminded me don't assume uh, malice when Mm -hmm. everything could be explained by by incompetence Mm -hmm. and this is I think the best the biggest refining that I had to do in my own master's Mm -hmm. is like letting people know that I'm I'm not assuming any intent unless mm-hmm. there is like clearly criminal intent that was that was there and that was um, decided by courts but I was like no like the reasons for which women um women were not integrated pro- properly it's because like they didn't know how to do this mm-hmm. and yeah. also like because they didn't know how to do this, they didn't prioritize it enough. And, and you know, and like there are all those cycles of toxic um, aspects of the military culture that I had identified that are specific to the time, I would say, um, that interfered in that. So also, I, when you look at toxic culture and when you look at toxicity, it's not intent or it's not like the actual effect of something that matters, it's the perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And and so like by focusing on perception and by emphasizing the question of perception, I was able to circumvent like some of those some of those accounts where it, like like whether they were factual or not. It's like no, that person like when you're looking about actual assault, you can say that person alleges assault Mm -hmm. like you can say that when it's like 
someone is saying that the leaders is careerist mm-hmm. when they say that like they're self-interested and stuff like that it's like the leaders might not be but the way they have behaved has yeah. been perceived as yeah. such yeah. and so like this is kind of like that thing that I constructed to circumvent those issues where it's like no it's about perception and and we need to pay attention to that the perception can be co- completely wrong absolutely but then there is something to be said then you can make an argument okay that perception is wrong mm-hmm. but what are you doing to resolve that exactly. and usually like what you see is a lack of communication and this is why like a lot of like perceptions of like leaders being malicious not caring about their subordinates is ever present because like there is a lack like there is a lack of flow of information mm-hmm. so this this is why also like i was like the way for me to approach this is doing it by perception mm-hmm. so that I, yes, I will be accused of sh- cherry picking, but like one time at a conference, I was asked that and I spent like two minutes just listing examples, um, which was very petty of me, but I was like, listen, like, yeah, these are just the stuff that I found. Exactly. And, and, and also like, you might not believe it, but for those people, it was still real. Exactly. And, and, and I think that this is important. And, and this is why I like the literature of toxic leadership and organizational behavior, because it takes into account psychology mm-hmm. um, and, and, and allowing for those discussions in, in my own work. Um, it makes it all the more interesting where it's like, OK, we, for example, right now in the military, we want culture change. But how are you going to make culture change seem genuine to people? And how are you going to? like make people see that like your attempts at pursuing culture change is gen like is true you have the purest intent and if you make mistakes like how do you communicate with your subordinates or your peers or even your superiors that this was an honest mistake and not like something that you've done because like you hate women or you hate minorities right because everyone has blind spots so like taking that that approach was was very helpful for me but then it brings me to, um, you know, what we discussed a bit earlier today, you know, what's happening right now in the military and the scandals that broke out earlier this year. Um, so now that you see the news, you know, some very high profile names um, being accused um, of misconduct, um, gender based misconduct. Uh, what do you make of this now? Right. So you have your research is historical, but considering that it's happening now um, and it's repeating a lot like we have news after news after news of this coming over um to the point where now i believe the new minister of defense said that the cases would be transferred to civilian courts right so what do you make of mm-hmm. it what's happening right now in the military related to gender-based harassment sexual violence on these issues we're we're facing the consequences of of the decade of darkness that, that were not addressed yeah. honestly um because so when you talk about the decade of darkness, I'm gonna give you like a, a tiny Canadian yeah. military yeah. history lesson, yeah. but uh, people will think about two things. First, intense downsizing. Budget cut was slashed after 93. Um, so a lot of equipments were getting old, uh, non-commissioned members, that is to say the lower levels of the military were living under the under the living wage, like they had to go to food banks to feed themselves and stuff like that. So that led to a lot of resentment. 
Then on the other side, you have a war crime happening in Somalia where you have a teenager that was tortured to death mm -hmm. in, in Somalia. Um, maybe we should add a content warning before I, yeah. I delve into this because it, 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 it's pretty awful. Mm -hmm. um, and then you had a cover up by yeah. the military and that led to five years of scandals. Mm -hmm. five years of scandals because this happened in 93 there was a commission of inquiry after that that gave its report in 98 you had uh you you think we had a lot of changes in chief of the defense staff this mm -hmm. year uh i think they had like four different chief yeah. of the defense staff at that time so you have those two aspects mm -hmm. And the response to the to the Somalia crisis was a lot of, oh, we need to better educate our leaders mm -hmm. because um, before ninety eight, let's say before ninety eight, uh, officers didn't have to have a bachelor's degree mm -hmm. to to become an officer, and even fewer had a master's degree. Like experience was valued above education. So a lot of the responses to the Somalia affair was was educational reform mm -hmm. which is not bad like i i do believe that we need to have leaders that that are educated and and you see the levels at which um generals in the united states operate because a lot of them have very advanced uh master's degrees or even phds from yeah. ivy leagues university and yeah. you can like their understanding of some strategic issues are go well and beyond but look at the u.s military that is very highly educated you still have a lot of misconduct exactly. yeah and canada yeah. like you you've had like an improvement in the education system even though it remained like a very military centric education system because the master's degree that most leaders beyond the lieutenant colonel level or major level have uh, a master's degree at the Canadian Forces College. Yeah. So yeah. it is a military institution. We all know that education doesn't resolve issues of misconduct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because of that, there has been a lot of issues that, that have yet to be addressed. For example, equipment for women. Uh, women are still operating with backpacks that are not adapted to them. Mm -hmm. uh, they have uniforms that don't fit them, which leads to eating disorders. Um, and the fitness standards are um, based on male competencies. For example, we know that men have more explosive power and women are more endurant. Mm -hmm. But we are, and, and women have uh, like stronger lower body strength mm -hmm. than upper body strength. But we still have physical standards are based on how many pull-ups you can do and how many push-ups you can do and like how fast you can run. Endurance is still there, but it's not as central as, as those other male-based uh, performance stuff. And so, and, and my question will be, do you know, do you need to know how to do 15 pull-ups to be successful in combat? I would argue not really, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. yeah, it helps you like de develop certain muscles, but you also need to take into account that in combat, you're going to have adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And we have seen women in, in situations of danger do 
stuff that are completely beyond physics okay. like lifting carts yeah to save their children yeah so when you look at all of those tiny things that are actual barriers to women's success in the military when you have a performance-based culture if someone is not able to pull their weight what happens is that they're going to be the target of, of uh, misconduct yeah and and also there is I don't know how much it is still the reality today, but in uh, in the 1990s, group punishments were a thing. So mm-hmm. if a service member was falling behind, the entire group, the entire unit would be punished. And wow. so what it led to was, um, was the unit retaliating. So this is why mm-hmm. like when we look at sexual misconduct, you also need to look at like, how valued the member is within their unit and mm-hmm. and a little and and like intersection that like let's look at intersectionality for that like intersection that with their demographics like their age like what type of masculinity they represent or if they are uh women um their sexual orientation and the color of the skin mm-hmm. and usually that's like you you start from that idea of like are they valued as a service member, like what are their barriers, like against their like full performance? And then how does like the way that they fit into demographics of the organization is gonna intersect with that and is gonna encourage misconduct. Yeah. And then when you're when you present either your research in the media or you comment on specific issues as you were talking about about sexual misconduct that come up again and again, how is your what kind of ethical dilemmas you deal with that, right? Because you're in the media, you have to be very simple. You have to present information that is, you know, accessible to the whole country at the same time. You know, you're talking about these very sensitive issues. Um, You know, the victims might be hearing you comment as well. So what are some of the questions that go through your mind or some of the, you know, dilemmas that you deal with there when you're commenting in the media on these, on these, on this issue? So there are many. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there is, you have to be as simple as possible yeah. because like the first thing that you need to do is knowledge translation. Mm-hmm, exactly. But then there are so many people that you need to take into account. Exactly. You need to mm-hmm. take into account the alleged perpetrators yeah. and respect uh, their presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. Then you have the victims, the yeah. survivors or anyone who refuses their those labels that have experienced any form of misconduct mm-hmm. or violence in the military. But you also have the service members that stand on the sidelines. Yeah. That are like, because the problem with the military, the difficulty with the military is that the institution is an identity. Mm-hmm. So how do you communicate problems of misconduct without essentially like making those people people feel them telling them like your identity is harmful, your identity sucks. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I take a step back usually, and I'm gonna say, we need to look at structures and how they involve, how they shape culture. You, I, I'm, I'm gonna like get super nerdy right now, but mm-hmm. I really like the idea of a gambin mm-hmm. that described uh, institutions and, and culture in general as, a human body, like very simplified human body, and, and you'll understand why. And like the structures are the bones mm-hmm. that keep the culture all together. Right. But also, like it, it, it gives a form to the culture that is the skin. 
but the culture keeps the bone in place as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like that radiative, constant uh, thing where it's like culture and structures become a whole. Yeah. Um, that that determines like what shape it like what shape the culture has and and all of that stuff. So if you see it as that, and if you look at the idea that people are sh- like people are influenced by, by those structures yeah. and that culture and like will choose a certain way like the, the question be, it becomes then what is their agency mm-hmm. and sometimes you need to to understand that their agency even though like we can have an argument about radical freedom and say yeah. like everyone is absolutely free anytime no you need to understand it in that in that box yeah and and understand like to what extent someone has agency so while i would push back against some people high ranking saying my hands were tied Mm-hmm. I will have more sympathy for people at the middle management or, or lower levels of the military where they try to do something in their, in their capacity, but they didn't have the resources and the time. Mm-hmm. And this is a big thing, is that understanding that there are circumstances that led those problems to, to continue over time. Mm-hmm. How service members are socialized, mm-hmm. how much government is going to give the military time and resources to pursue culture change, because that is a, a big problem. How can we ask our military to change its culture when they have to keep like the operational standard exactly. that they have? You know, if we don't give them the time to have conversations, to have training and give money for them to change the structure and like to adapt to it and to communicate with each other, it's going to be more complicated. So you need to understand like those those restrictions. And so I always like take a step back and, and say, okay, when, when we look at the institution writ large, mm-hmm. What are the barriers to culture change? What what is the problem? And sometimes, like just giving someone, you know, pure agency when it comes to resisting culture change, I think is a problem mm-hmm. because they have assumptions and beliefs and perception, as we talked about earlier, that would lead them to have those that pushback to to engage in pushback. Yeah, where I have a little bit less empathy is when we're dealing to the people that are in power. Yeah. And then it's like where my approach changes, where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to come with it from, with empathy, because like, I think that it's not fair to throw people under the bus, mm-hmm. but like I, I, I commented in the media taking a lot of issue with Justin Trudeau saying the military still doesn't get it, but like the minister not like the prime minister not doing anything about it yeah so yeah. you know i took it like yeah this is the kind of thing where it's like your your job is to literally change that so mm-hmm. i'm not gonna have like a lot of sympathy for a comment like this like yeah yeah it's kind of like a lot of people are gonna applaud but i have a problem with that because yeah. it's throwing everyone under the bus but if i have like someone that was the head of the culture change agency telling me while my hands were tied, I'm gonna be like, <laughs> yes, but like, 
you have to give me more, right? Yeah. Because like right now, like your your general officer, you you have like one some of the most power in the organization. Like, what made your hands tied? What was the problem? You need to convince me here. Yeah. Um, and then when you talk to um, when you talk about allegations of, of sexual misconduct, I sometimes the only thing you can do to resolve the ethical dilemma of protecting someone's presumption of innocence and protecting the survivor mm-hmm. is to say is is to say uh, the the accuser or the accused there's gonna be um, there's gonna be an investigation there's gonna and a trial trial mm-hmm. but also like you don't necessarily need to negate the experience of a, of someone who has lived through sexual misconduct to to address those questions you yeah. you can keep them separate yeah. you know you can you can keep them separate and and in that way you kind of circumvent some of the issues it's not perfect and and this is a problem like once again, when we talk about perception, there are some stuff that are beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And, and at some point, you need to accept the fact that despite your best effort, the media has control about what you say. To, they have control over what you say to them and what's going to come like on paper. Mm-hmm. And, and it's normal, you know, like you cannot ask them to like put out the transcript of like your 20 minute conversation. Like they, like what they want from you is like context and then like something that they can add to, to add credibility to, to the piece. Also the media is not going to quote you when you say, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And, and at some point you need to accept that once you say the words that you say, they're going to come, like, they become to the zeitgeist now. Yeah. And they're going to make it, they're going to make it to the public or not. And then be open to receiving feedback. Um, yeah. I've, I've, I've experienced uh, both sides of everything. Like, it's like, I've been criticized. Uh, I've received very difficult emails to, to read. I received phone, very difficult phone calls mm-hmm. uh, where uh, one of them, I, I actually talked about this on Twitter, where a, a person started screaming at me for for not respecting the presumption of innocence of one of the accused, and and destroying his career. Um, and so it was like it was a very difficult conversation to have. But mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? You called me for a reason. You seem angry and distressed in your phone call. Like maybe let's try to have that conversation. It was difficult, uh, and and he he clearly just wanted to vent and sometimes it's like that's all I can do and and also I I am open to any feedback I've had conversation with some survivors Twitter is a very useful tool even though it doesn't represent everyone you can take the temperature mm-hmm. uh, you can see how people react so I I am on Twitter I follow a lot of survivors and sometimes I don't engage I just I'm gonna sound so creepy but I just look Mm-hmm. and read what they're saying to like okay how are my comments being received I go on the Canadian forces subreddit because of anonymity like a lot of people are going to tend like are going to be like way more candid than some people on on uh, on Twitter because Twitter is not as anonymous yeah and then like all the people around me um because I have a support system that is good enough where it's like and and I make it clear to people tell me if I'm wrong Mm -hmm. tell me if I messed up and 
and I sent you the link to a piece I've written where it's like, I am constantly thinking about it. I'm, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, how, um, like how mean the media are affecting, like not only people who have experienced violence, but also like the bystanders, the people yeah. that are in the organization and that have not lived through that kind of thing. Yeah. How are they doing? How can I still criticize the military, but not be a Debbie Downer? You yeah. know, um, and and it, it's complicated, and I'm not gonna please any everyone, and it's difficult. It's not. It's really not easy, but I I think that keeping yourself accountable and continuing constantly to ask yourself those questions. Also, I always go back to my commentary. I always look it up. I'm like, okay, I talk to those people. Like, let me look at it. It's painful. It's not fun to like see yourself on TV. It kind of sucks, honestly. <laughs> but that difficult exercise is like, okay, I said this like that. Like, is there any other way that I could put it better? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. It's a lot yeah. of emotional labor. Yeah. But I am such an, like I am in a situation where I owe it to a lot of people to do that labor. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that this is why I have been so successful in in those past few months mm-hmm. is not only like I'm very available but it's also like I'm careful like I'm approaching this with like more like I want things to be better and not like let me tell you what I think and like Charlotte's gonna give like her two cents and she's gonna skip away uh and and go about her day no it's it's a constant reflection a constant conversation not only with journalists but also with myself with my friends with the people who know me I think that like like that it's it becomes way easier to to address some of those challenges yeah because I really like um what you're mentioning because in political science we call it reflexivity right like even as a researcher yourself and it ties back to your earlier point that we try to be objective you know it is obviously a goal that be as objective as possible but we are not we are human beings so this idea of reflexivity like always check back who you are in power over who has more power in any kind of interaction like you were saying you know go back to what you did is there any way you can improve you can make whether it's about making your information more accessible whether you know being even more sensitive towards survivors or, you know, whichever topic you're studying. Um, and being a good listener, I think, is a very important part of being a re- qualitative researcher specifically because you're actually listening to people's stories and not just crunching numbers. So I really like what you really put into two words. It's just this idea of, you know, academics, we call it reflexivity, you know, constantly going back and forth um, to see, you know, how, how your research is doing, what is your positionality in a particular context who how who you are impacts what you're studying and how you present it so now we're coming towards the end of the podcast so I really want to ask you to give some advice you know let's say new graduate students people who are maybe wanting to study military culture specifically or you know students who might just want to study on issues of sexual violence in another context such as civil war or even like in in broader society um what 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 would be you know one or two pieces of advice you would give them as they're planning um planning their (laughs) research in early careers i would say find your support system Mm -hmm. like it's it's so important because you're gonna find yourself in difficult, like in difficult situation where you have to find yourself in um, 
in awful position you're gonna feel bad about yourself at some point yeah yeah uh because sometimes you're gonna say you your research gonna find stuff that doesn't align with the needs or like the perception of some people mm-hmm. so it is find some people that are honest with you but that's still like believing your work um and and a lot of the time uh, an issue that i have with academia is that a lot of time we we give criticism to give criticism yeah and it's like no like let's look at the person first mm-hmm. understand where they're coming from and and deal with that i think that this I, I guess I have three piece, pieces of advice. Um, the second would be, it's not about you. Yeah. It's not about you. Don't come about it with, I am an expert. I'm going to tell you what's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I find myself being like more of a, I, I tend to differentiate myself from my analysis, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm going to be a mouthpiece for my analysis. And while my personality, obviously, and all my biases are going to come into it, it's like, I try to not make it personal. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, if someone tells me I'm wrong, what I'm going to do is like, go back and be like, okay, what did I miss? Um, and, and also, a survivor is going to tell you their experience. Mm-hmm. And... And you need to take it as is and mm-hmm. then sit back and reflect on it. You know, like, as you say, reflexivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and just like by making this beyond you and, and, and because of that, like beyond your control, there's some stuff that like are gonna like hit you in the face. And this is why like your support system is going to be good for you because you're gonna you're gonna be able to grapple with these questions with these contradictions and and removing yourself as a person from those ideas um like a little bit like approaching like it's a role that you're taking that you're an actor that you're pretending that you're someone else yeah i i I find that sometimes um is it is helpful and then i i guess the third one is and actually, I'm kind of like go back to like personal background, yeah. but that, that would like give you some insight into why I'm approaching this this way. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not about you because your research is supposed to serve. Mm-hmm. And my in my high school, we had that model, which is succeed to serve, seek yeah. excellence to serve. And so like, I this is why I'm approaching things. I want to do better because I want to improve things. I want to like serve the organization that I'm, that I'm working on. I want to serve the military in my own way, you know, where it's like, how can we do this better? How can we do that better? And like going from that, where it's like me being in the media in the end, like a lot of people are like, oh my God, it's so exciting. And I'm like, well, yes, it is. But I I care more about the discourse than me just talking to Murray Brewster. Even though I really like Murray Brewster, he's super nice, but like, this is not my priority. Uh, I did not see the media. The, the media sought me. And it's like, okay, how can I contribute to this, to the conversation? And not like, hey, look, mom, I'm in the media. Actually, like, it's very funny because my mom always sends me articles in which I'm quoted and I'm like, mom, it's three months old. <laughs> like, 
you you think that I've done like 15 interviews I've done over 100 Mm -hmm. since February of 2021 yeah but I don't I don't mention that I tend not to like please go ahead like promote yourself promote your expertise but me I come from a place of like I'd I I prefer it when people come to me and and be like hey I, I liked your your commentary or like Hey Charlotte, like I saw you um, commenting on this. Like there are some stuff that I want you, like that I would like you to know. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Talk about. Let's talk about this. And like using that as as a way to elevate the conversation. Like because as a researcher, you're gonna you're gonna identify gaps. But then there's gonna be someone younger and smarter than you that's gonna come <laughs> and identify gaps. So you know, like that yeah. that remind like serve yourself a a little piece of humble pie from time to time uh and 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 so like I'm closing the loop because I have a my mentors are actually like all older white men (laughs) but like because they have a very different perception of defense than I do Mm -hmm. sometimes like I'm very confronted with like some questions I didn't take into account and so when I'm confronted with that I'm like oh wait I may have jumped a gun on this. Mm-hmm. And so it gives me pause. And, and overall, like I'm trying to include all of those perspectives. So have a good support system that can be honest with you and mm-hmm. get out of your eco chamber. Mm-hmm. So like talk to people who are not in your field of study. Like right. the person with whom I've had like the most fascinating experiences, um, like the most fascinating discussions about sexual misconduct and defense and how culture change fits into defense is my boss and he works in defense procurement. Um, So, you know, it's like very different. Uh, Understand that it's not about you and it's beyond your control. Mm -hmm. Approach it with a willingness to serve rather than like for your own success. Your own success will come because you come from a way of like, I want to learn Mm -hmm. and I want to contribute. That's excellent. All the three pieces of advice were excellent, Charlotte. Thank you so much. So uh, before I let you go, I want to ask if our listeners want to connect more with you, learn more about your work, where can they find you, um, you know, connect with you? Would you like to share any of your social media accounts or any other place where they can, you know, um, learn more about your work? Yeah, so uh, my name is Fairly Unique, so it's fairly easy to find me on uh, on Google. Uh, mm-hmm. But my Twitter is where I am um, the most present. And honestly, I kind of like failed at keeping up with my personal email account. So don't send me an email. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna re- like I'm not gonna respond. Like I have people sending me emails, and three months later, I still haven't replied. Uh, but engage with me on Twitter. It's uh, at Charlotte Dulan, so D-U-L-A-N at the end. It's just like me with my uh, with my notorious headphones because I, I wear those all the time now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, send me a DM, and I'll, I'll be happy to chat. Um, and you can also like find some of my work on uh, on the CGEI website. Uh, all the podcasts that you will see on CGEI, like I contributed to them in a way, um, but also my articles, my op-eds are listed on there, which is pretty nifty. And uh, my book is coming out in May of 2022. So you can find the ones we let down right now on pre-order uh, on Amazon, but it's gonna be on the McGill Queens University Press website. 
very soon. And I'd rather you give my money to McGill University Press directly than to Jeff Bezos, please. Yes, yes, I, I second that. <laughs> More ethical considerations More ethical. at the end in the vlog. In the, exactly. in the plug. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent plug at the end of podcast. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I really want to thank you for being the very first guest on my podcast and for such an interesting discussion. I learned a lot because specifically military as an institution, I feel it is a bit insulated. You know, it's you are looking at it as an outsider, like what is happening? And then you see all the things in the news and you read all kinds of commentaries, but it's it's very interesting uh, to learn from somebody who has actually done historical research and now contributing on the current events that are happening. Um, so I, again, want to thank you so much for taking the time. It was amazing to, to be on the podcast and it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And our listeners, I will see you next time with another guest and another topic on ethics of research. Thank you. Bye, everyone.